police officers face unique stressors not seen in the general public, witnessing some of the most tragic events that happen in our communities. The threat of violence an added layer for many. Access to mental health care is critical, but few in law enforcement communities seek help. Hello and welcome to 20-Minute Health Talk. I'm David Reich-Hale. Our guests today are working to remove barriers to mental health services for police. Joining us remotely from Dallas, Texas, is Dr. Caitlin Jedalina, a data scientist, violence epidemiologist, and educator studying vulnerable populations exposed to violence. The Director of Population Health Analytics at the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute has published extensively over the last decade on this issue. Welcome, Dr. Jedalina. Thank you for having me. And with us in studio is Nick Stefanisi, CEO of Northwell Direct, an organization that provides wellness and healthcare services tailored to the needs of companies large and small, from JetBlue to Whole Foods to the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Northwell Direct and the NYPD recently announced a new collaboration called Finest Care, which will bring free confidential counseling, and other mental health services to the largest police department in the United States. Nick, welcome back to the program. Great to be back, David. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. And we'll talk more about the collaboration with the NYPD in a minute. But first, let's set the stage here. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, police face higher rates of depression, substance use, burnout, PTSD, and anxiety than the general public. Tragically, more police officers die by suicide than they do in the line of duty. Uh, Dr. Jedalina, in a 2020 paper, your team identified four primary barriers that keep police officers from accessing mental health care. Can you tell us what those are? That's right. So we worked very closely uh, uh, with a few police departments in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Texas, and we found four big themes. Uh, The first was that there's just a general lack of knowledge that the officer himself or herself is experiencing a mental health issue. Their stress level, uh, they get numb to it. They get so accustomed to having that stress that it's really the norm to it. Um, A lot of them said it, they are numb to it. And so they, a lot of people don't realize how close they are needing to um, get mental health services in the first place. But once they do realize they, um, they have a mental health problem, or illness, a lot of them don't seek services. And we found that there's really three reasons for this is one, a concern about confidentiality within the department. A lot of police officers do not trust internally their own department. Um, A lot of them told us that it's like high school, that word gets out um, and they don't want to tell anyone that they have a mental health concern. Um, and two, the the other reason a lot of officers don't seek mental health services, they told us because they don't believe that psychologists can relate to their occupational duties. Um, they they don't think that psychologists really understand what they are seeing and what they're going through, uh, and so. 
Um, they don't necessarily trust the psychologist themselves. And then third reason is just stigma. The stigma that officers are seeking mental health services and they are not fit to do their jobs. Um, And uh, I think that stigma is not just what we see in the police departments, but it's what we see in the general public as well. And so what's really important is that by identifying those four major themes, we can start chipping away and start developing interventions to, one, have officers uh, recognize that they may have a mental health illness or even more upstream of how to prevent a mental health illness, and then uh, figure out ways to directly reach officers um, that is acceptable to them. Can you talk more about the culture of policing and why these four barriers exist? Yeah, so the culture of policing, it's a it's a very tight-knit group. Um, as a researcher, it took me a decade to gain their trust, to understand what was going on. Um, and then there's also this very machoism environment, um, and not just among the males, but interestingly, in our research, we found that females um, have significant stress because of this environment as well. We're finding it's very difficult to get uh, reduce the stigma among the general population, but it's specifically even more so among first responders. Nick, you've heard a lot of the same. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, I, I know we're talking specifically about police officers here, but you could you could broaden the lens and and talk about uh, first responders and frontline uh, frontline workers in general. And certainly we see it uh, within our own healthcare environment uh, where uh, there are individuals who have uh, struggled uh, with barriers to receiving and accessing the care uh, that would that would really significantly help them deal with these issues uh, because of stigma and some of the things uh, that have that have previously been mentioned. So I, I certainly think, um, that we've seen it. I think in part, there's an element of the individuals that are drawn to this type of service. Uh, they're drawn to it because they want to be the ones uh, that are out there on the front line, uh, helping their fellow citizens, helping their neighbors, helping their communities. Um, and uh, there's also there's some element of um, them feeling like they're falling down on their ability to meet that commitment. And I think that that really contributes uh, to the stigma and 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 really we've had to think about how do we help them understand that it's okay. It's okay to need help yourself. Now there are just under 18,000 local and state law enforcement agencies in the United States. How prevalent is this issue nationally and what can be done? Dr. Jetalina, I mean, if there's 18,000, is there some hope that in some places they've cracked the code? You know, it's, uh, if we're just talking about mental health illness among and specifically police officers, which is a lot of my research, it's a major problem. Um, We're seeing that about 26, 27% of police officers have a mental illness. About 60% of them have PTSD. Um, About 20% of them have suicide ideation or self-harm ideation. Um, And those are are high numbers. Those are really high numbers. What concerns me even more, and, you know, it's not surprising. Police officers see the worst... the worst day of everyone. Um, you don't you don't call nine one one when you're having a good day, 
But what's most concerning to me is that very, very few of these officers seek mental health services. Um, in my research, only about 10% of, for example, that 60% with PTSD have ever uh, sought mental health care. And we really need to change that. We need our police officers healthy in mind and body um, so that they can uh, effectively respond when we need them to, um, as well as so they can have a good quality of life uh, and a, a solid career going forward. And we, we all know police officers. They're either in our families or they're our friends. And we, and just talking to them and understanding their their jobs, we sort of understand that it's a tight-knit community and they have personal bonds. Uh, are those bonds something that can be used to help crack this code where maybe if a few police officers come out and speak about this, it can, it can open it up? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually just saw that when we were doing focus groups um, that we just needed one officer to start talking about really starting to um, open up. And once one one officer started talking, the entire room just started talking. And so that's where we really leverage and research this idea of peer support networks, specifically with mental illness. Um, for example, in Texas, we are implementing a peer support network across all University of Texas um, officers. And that's exactly what it brings in is it's not, it's not a necessary, it's not a psychologist. What we are, who we are training are the officers themselves to really help their brethren. And uh, it seems to be a very effective approach specifically uh, after uh, big uh, emergency events. And Nick, tell us about finest care, because this is, this is maybe another, another one where if they're talking to each other and they start using finest care that, it can grow. How did this collaboration with the NYPD come to be? Yeah, so we're really proud of the work that we're doing with the NYPD around the Finest Care program. We went live in June, uh, and the way that it works is essentially we've created uh, an access point. We've removed that first hurdle of, okay, I have an issue. Where do I even go to deal with this, and how do I even get access to the services? The NYPD had this vision uh, for providing access to uh, concierge level triage uh, and navigation and then clinical services related to behavioral health uh, for the frontline uniformed officers of the MYPD. 24-7-365, uh, all of the uniformed officers of the MYPD have access to our behavioral health contact center. Uh, where they will be uh, greeted by a clinical professional who will triage uh, their situation, their needs, uh, put them through an assessment, and then determine the most appropriate course of treatment for that individual. That could include uh, a teleconsultation. That could include an in-person visit uh, with a psychiatrist or a psychologist. It could include uh, if an individual is in acute crisis, deploying an ambulance through our Center for Emergency Medical Services. So what we really have the ability to do is to make sure that we connect the individual to the appropriate venue of care, the appropriate type of care for the particular need. And we do that based on a clinical triage. And again, we make it easy and simple and, and less than burdensome. 
for the individual to actually figure out where to go as an access point, as an entry point. How has the rollout of Finest Care gone? It's gone really smoothly. Uh, we've already engaged uh, in the few short months uh, that we've been live. We've engaged with over uh, 100 uh, uniformed officers of the NYPD. Uh, we suspect that as that word of mouth continues to get out there, uh, that we will continue to see uh, greater and greater adoption. But what we've seen thus far has been consistent with our expectations when we went live, and the NYPD has been a terrific partner uh, throughout this. One of the other commitments that I think is really important is that we've committed for any appointments, whether they're follow-up uh, tele-appointments or they're in-person with a psychiatrist or a psychologist, uh, we've committed uh, that these members of the NYPD will be seen within 48 hours of their making contact with the Finest Care Contact Center. And so that makes a real difference when you have people out in the community waiting uh, days, weeks, months uh, to be able to sit down and have that conversation. What we've done is said, you know what, you've taken that first step of, of reaching out and engaging. Uh, we're going to make sure very quickly we're able to get you in. And we've made that commitment. And I think that's been an important part of what makes this a real asset. Dr. Jettalina, what do you think of the finest care model? I, it make, it's, makes me so happy. <laughs> we need, we, we really, really need to improve access um, to officers. You know, when, I, when we uh, work with officers, one of the first things they say is we don't know where to go. Um, they don't want to do necessarily an internal thing, but they, they want something a little more external for that confidentiality. And it seems that this is a really great model, especially if Finest Care is leveraging this telehealth model um, because a lot of officers don't like going in person. They rather have that more distanced, at least with that first encounter. Um, so it sounds great, and I'm really excited to hear about it and learn more about it so we can hopefully disseminate and maybe even implement it in other models or even other police departments that aren't as massive as the NYPD. Thinking through concurrently um, upstream uh, prevention of um, mental health illness altogether so they don't get to this point, as well as um, figuring out more systematic ways to get them connected, I think uh, would only strengthen it as well. So very excited to hear about Finest Care, and I, I hope that we can build on top of it. Well, that's great to hear, Dr. Jenalina, and really, really appreciate that. We're, as I said, very, very proud of this work. And and I have to say, I, I couldn't agree more with you. The need to continue to try to push upstream uh, is really, really important, particularly in behavioral health, but really in all aspects of, of health and well-being. And it's something uh, we talk a lot about with employers. Um, the telehealth component that Dr. Jetalina mentioned, I absolutely agree. Uh, the majority of the uh, appointments that we're seeing scheduled and requested after engaging uh, with our uh, behavioral health call center are tele-appointments. And I think that's consistent with what we're seeing across industry where most, uh, most of the telehealth uh, type visits have returned to pre-pandemic normal levels except behavioral health uh, because people like that, that comfort, that security of being able to say, I'm going to do this from my home. If we can couple that, which we are planning to roll out, uh, couple that with some digital uh, solutions that 
that put this capability where we all live uh, in the palms of our hands in our smartphone, uh, then I think you'll also uh, support further, further scalability. And that's something we're really excited about. I think that technology perspective um, that Nick was mentioning is really important. And it's something that we can start quite literally leveraging um, for example, hard to reach populations that are out in the field. For example, we're doing a lot of uh, research work with uh, smart watches and um, tracking heart rates of police officers. And when it's sustained over time, uh, figuring out how to get them mindfulness exercises uh, so we can uh, decrease mental health illness upstream. I have been very surprised of how much the officers love this. Um, they love the recognition of when they are stressed and when they're not stressed. I thought they would maybe just take off their watches and throw it out the window if it was buzzing at them, but um, they, they liked that um, awareness. Um, and even beyond just at a high stress call, a lot of officers recognized um, anticipatory stress. So when they're in their car on the way to work for their first shift, some of their watches started buzzing. And so they could get their heart rate down before they even started their shift. We have a lot of innovative ideas. It's just a matter of um, bringing those populations along for the ride and uh, implementing them and testing them to make sure that they are effective. Dr. Jetalina, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute works with cities, counties, and regions to improve access to mental health care. Can you tell us more about your organization? And what other strategies have you found effective? Yeah, sure. So we are basically a policy think tank, a nonpartisan policy think tank. And my role is how do we use data to drive effective policies? The number one thing that's really important with any development of the intervention is stakeholder engagement. For example, with police officers, if um, I and my team wasn't able weren't able to partner with them, we would have probably implemented something that was not acceptable to them and was not feasible. And then we would have seen uptake that was suboptimal. And so really listening to their needs, um, they have very innovative ideas of how, for example, you, you can reach them uh, at midnight during, you know, their, their graveyard shift, for example. And so putting the minds together can, can then really truly move that needle. And, and we're talking in this case, our agreement, our Northwell Direct is working with NYPD and it's an, obviously the biggest, never mind an urban police department, it's the biggest in the United States. But there are also smaller departments, typically rural or suburban areas in the country, where the suicide rate increases to almost four times the national average. What factors contribute to that specifically? That's right. And I work with a lot of rural police departments, and um, you know, it's it's really all the same but access to mental health services is abysmal. Um, and that's where the, the we could really leverage telehealth, especially after what we've seen with the pandemic. Um, and so I, I think that is a lower hanging fruit right now uh, to, to try and get mental health services to bring it to them uh, so they don't have to travel a hundred miles to the, to the nearest mental health services. Um, 
And there's a lot more isolation. I would say that there is more stigma in the rural areas as well around mental health illness. And so um, it's a lot of the same themes, but but uh, very much um, heightened. And if we go beyond just policing in rural areas, suburban areas, heck, almost anywhere, Nick, are employers offering robust behavioral health services as part of their benefits packages? Are they starting to think more about this? So I would say, and I, I've said a couple of times before, to me, COVID was a, was a game changer around this. I think it woke a lot of employers up to the fact that they needed to make investments in the behavioral health and well-being of their team members. They needed to make the investments in a more resilient workforce that that COVID had sort of fundamentally changed what employees were looking for from their employers. And in my view, the, the companies that that make this pivot, that make these investments, they'll be the employers of choice uh, going forward. And I, I would say we're starting to see that play out. We're starting to see through our conversations with employers, brokers, consultants, that uh, this is an area that is top of mind, not just for the HR leaders of the company, but really the entire C-suite. And if you look at the market uh, over the last couple of years, there's been something like $5 billion of investment from private equity companies in any number of behavioral health related startups uh, that are out there in the market. Now, you can debate uh, the efficacy of those point solutions and uh, whether or not they're really the ones that can move the needle. But certainly we're seeing uh, that there is a real interest here in trying to crack this code, in trying to help employees uh, get access to this much needed care. And so I'm really appreciative of you having us here and allowing us to talk about this and promote some of these concepts, uh, because I think everything that we can do to get this word out um, and make sure people hear and understand that message is really, really important. Well, Dr. Caitlin Chetalina and uh, Nick Stefanizzi, thanks so much for joining us today and for the work you do to improve access to our friends in law enforcement. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you. And to you, the listener, thanks for tuning in. Again, I'm David Reichhale, and this has been 20 Minute Health Talk. Get more expert insight from some of the leading voices in healthcare today. Subscribe to 20 Minute Health Talk on Podbean, Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.